And then after the sermon, we will sing about how the Lord God and his angel protect us. That's the angel that Elihu also spoke to Job about, how the angel will protect us from evil and preserves that and preserves us. So Psalm 34, the stands 2, 3, 7, and 8 after the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, in trying to convince others about the truth and validity of our Christian religion, we all struggle with the same problem. How do we convince them about the truth of God and his word and about the great love that he has for his creation? Because of our sinfulness, there are so many obstacles. We are so limited in our own understanding and in our ability to explain who God is and why he does what he does. How do you tell an unbelieving colleague or neighbor about the justice and truth and love of God when horrible things happen in this world or to him personally? How do you tell them that they have to call upon the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, for comfort and for enlightenment and for strength, and that they can only find answers with him? It's even hard for us to explain that to fellow believers when they are in pain. How do you explain to someone who believes that God is almighty and just and full of truth and love, and yet who allows evil things to happen? Oh, sure, we can come with some generalities and quote some verses from the Bible. We can also tell them about our own experiences. But that doesn't quite cut it with someone who has been terribly wronged and abused, especially not if the abuser himself is a Christian. It doesn't quite cut it either with someone whose little child has just been murdered at the hands of some deranged individual nor with those who have just gone through great upheaval after an earthquake and that has cut the lives of their immediate family and friends and relatives short, snuffed out, and when you yourself have been left homeless. How do you explain God in those circumstances? Where is he? What is he doing? The friends of Job also struggled to explain these things to Job. Job had lost everything, including his health. Disaster upon disaster was piled upon him. How do you explain that to him? Job's friends, however, believed that they had all the answers. In their way of thinking, God Almighty doesn't make any mistakes. He is also just, and he treats everyone equally. If you do something wrong and you do not repent from it and confess your sin, then you are going to be punished. It only makes sense, so they say. And they made some very elaborate statements and explanations to support their claim and said some very hurtful things to Job. Job, however, refuted them. He says to them that there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to who is going to suffer and who is not. There are those who, although not sinless, love God and their neighbor and show that in every way they are godly and of good character, but who are nevertheless made to suffer bitterly. And Job also gives all kinds of claims to back up what he is saying. 
They're at a stalemate. They have exhausted their arguments. Nothing more need to be said. They can't see eye to eye. No one has won the argument. It is at that point that another friend arrives on the scene, Elihu. It seems that he appears out of nowhere. At this point, we did not even know that he existed and that he had been listening in. He had stayed in the background. And he explained why he did that. He was still a young man, and he did not think that it was his place to say anything. But after listening to these three men, he was angry with them. He was angry with Job because he felt justified before God, and he was angry with the three friends because they were not able to refute Job. Although he comes across somewhat arrogantly and overstates his case, nevertheless, Elihu has a lot of good things to say. He comes at it from a different perspective, and he has a more balanced picture. But in the end, his arguments do not carry any weight either. He does not convince Job or his three friends, and the Lord God afterwards does not even refer to Elihu's speech. God speaks, and that happens only, and, that, and he speaks out of the thunder, and then he reveals himself in a most glorious way. That's what I will preach to you about this morning. It is about the glorious revelation to Job of God's sovereignty. And then we will have three points. We will first look at Elihu's explanations about God, and then we will also refer to the readings that we had, as you can see behind me, and also secondly about God's revelation of his greatness, and then finally God's revelation of his mercy. Elihu now comes with a different perspective on the debate. He is young, and he shows the vigor of his youth and also the impetuousness of youth. But he correctly states that just because he is young does not mean that he doesn't have anything to contribute. As long as God's word is allowed to speak through you. And that is why he says in verse 8 that the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. In other words, if you have the word of God, then no matter how old you are, or how young you are, you can bring something worthwhile into the conversation. It is not just life experience that gives you wisdom. It is first of all God who gives you wisdom. He also shows the insecure brusqueness of youth. In order to be heard and to show the rightness of his cause, he shows anger. And anger, as James also says, does not bring about the righteousness that God requires. Elihu lacks humility. Yet his anger is not his fundamental reason for speaking. He is not out to prove Job wrong, as the other three friends were, but to have him and the others look at things from a different perspective. Elihu paints an awesome picture for Job and his friends. He observes Job's, Job's suffering and the fact that he is drawing near to the grave. But then in chapter 33, verse 23 and following, suddenly he introduces an angel who is at the side of the one whose soul is drawing near to the pit. 
And what does that angel do? Well, he ministers to him in an awesome way. First of all, that angel will tell him what is right for him. And in the second place, that angel will intercede for him. For that angel appears, as it says, to make the plea to spare him from going down to the pit. He even says that he has found a ransom for him and that his flesh will be renewed like a child's as in the days of his youth. Who does that sound like, brothers and sisters? Doesn't like that, doesn't sound that like he is speaking about the coming Christ who is both our mediator and our ransom? It does. Job pleaded for a heavenly witness to argue his case before God after his death. He knew that his Redeemer lives. Well, says Elihu, he does. He will pay the price for you. And through him you will also have the renewal of life. In chapter 6, verse 22, Job had said to his friends that he never expected them to do something on his behalf or to pay a ransom from their wealth. He expected that from God. And now in this beautiful passage, Elihu agreed that God is indeed the only one who can pay that ransom and redeem his life. But according to Elihu, the only way that this would come about is if Job would humble himself and admit that he had sinned. However, Job does not respond to him. He had already made his case. He had already admitted that he was a sinner. He had also told him that he was waiting for God to speak. And nevertheless, Elihu continues to speak. Although he says that he wants Job also to make his case, he does not even give him a chance. He does not give him the chance to respond. Elihu is full of youthful exuberance. He becomes oblivious to others and their situation. He has a one track mind and is on a roll. And so he goes on and deals with Job's complaint about God's injustice. And so doing, he makes some very good points. He reminds Job that far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. You're certainly right about that. That's the absolute truth. God wants nothing to do with evil. An unjust God would be as unthinkable as a square circle or a round triangle. Although it may appear that God sometimes deals unjustly, in reality that is never the case. As Elihu says in chapter 34, verse 10, he repays a man for what he has done, and he brings upon him what his conduct deserves. And again, he is right. When evil happens, it is because God is punishing us because of our sin. The problem with Elihu and also the three friends of Job was that they attributed God's punishment to a specific sin. But that is only true if you can clearly identify the cause with the effect. If, for example, you lead a dangerous lifestyle, then you will most likely come to harm. For example, if you smoke, then you are much more prone to die of cancer than those who don't. If you speed and drive carelessly, then you are at a great risk to get into an accident and harm yourself and others. There's a clear connection. 
but not all things can be directly attributed to a specific behavior. Not all cancers are caused by smoking, not even lung cancer. And not all accidents are caused by careless driving. Suffering comes about because we are sinful people living in a sinful world. It is because of the result of our own sin. We're all sinners. And therefore, we're all going to experience the effect of it. There is no way to escape the justice of God. Because of sin, we are subject to decay. But Elihu does not want Job to despair. And so in the end of his speech, he speaks to Job about the greatness of God. Although Elihu comes across arrogantly, he has a pastoral heart. He does not want Job to lose courage. He does not want him to become so depressed that he will want to end it all. Instead, he wants him to praise God in the midst of his misery. He tells him to remember the Lord's work which men have praised in song. He says, understand how great God is. He is beyond understanding. Elihu's speech, in many ways, is a very good one. After the pontifications of the three friends of Job, he is like a breath of fresh air. Nevertheless, he does not elicit a response from Job. That is because Elihu was talking at him. He wasn't really talking with him. He spoke about God's greatness, but not about God's love. He gave an explanation about God, but not a revelation of God. That's the second point. Elihu did not show God's love by identifying with him and entering into his pain. Elihu, like the other three friends, stood on the outside looking in. And you can never reach anyone in this way. For the answer to God and who he is is not abstract. He, God does not exist on the outside. He is not an idea or a proposition that we come to after having examined all the facts. The answer to God is God himself. It is his revelation. It is the almighty creator who stands in a relationship with his creation. You do not discover who he is through some clever argumentations. You cannot get the right answers about God as you would by figuring out the right answer to some formula that may work in science and algebra, but that doesn't work when it comes to finding the answer about God. The only way you can discover about God and who he is is by being in a relationship with him. You can only know who he is if you realize the intimate connection that he has with his whole creation and that he has with us. And it is that truth that the Lord God establishes when he speaks to Job and his three friends. And then he gives his speech. It is a wonderful speech. It is an awesome speech. And of course, you would expect that because he's the almighty creator who created the word and also who crafted these words. And first he speaks about how he is the creator of all things and that all things are in his control. And so he thunders out of the storm and says to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. The Living Bible paraphrases it. 
Why are you using your ignorance to deny my providence? For indeed, that is what we are trying to establish here. Job questioned God's justice. He questioned the way that he dealt with him. In other words, he criticized the way God controlled his human beings, and therefore he also questioned the way God ruled all of creation. He questioned God's sovereignty over all things. In chapter 42, verse 7, we learn that the Lord God is not angry with Job because he did not speak about what is right. Job didn't say anything wrong as such. But what he did lack was humility. He lacked understanding. And he did not admit that. And Job thought that he could call God to account because of what was happening to him. Well, brothers and sisters, we may question God and even wonder about his justice when we are in the midst of miserable circumstances, but we may not be so arrogant as to think that we can second-guess God. In order to make his point, God asks Job 77 questions, none of which he could answer. He first asks him whether or not he can explain his creation. He says to him, were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, Job, how did I go about it? Have you any idea, Job? And then he continues, do you know how the seas came into existence and how their boundaries were established? Do you know where the waters come from, Job? Tell me. And what about the gates of death? Have they been shown to you, Job? And so he kept, he kept questioning Job. Where did the clouds come from? Where does light have its existence? Where were you before the light even existed as I was? And what about the lightning from the sky? Do the lightning bolts report to you? He also brought Job's attention to the heavens. He says, can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Oh, sure, you may be able to study the stars and all that, but have you put them there? And are all the stars and all the constellations, are they under your control? Brothers and sisters, the laws that keep this universe together are mind-boggling. The way that this universe is put together is so intricate and so full of surprises and so absolutely wonderful that all we can do is stand back in awe. There is not a mind in the world that can even come close to understanding it. God is so great. And he wants Job to reflect. If you think, Job, that you have so much understanding and know how everything in creation ought to behave, then why don't you use that knowledge to change your own situation? You can't. You cannot explain my creation. And you cannot oversee my creation either. But I can. And so he speaks to Job about how his creation is maintained and provided for. 
speaks to him about the lions and the ravens and the mountain goats. He oversees them all. There's not a creature on earth that he does not know about. He knows when they give birth. He knows where they give birth. He knows where they go for their food. For he is the one who makes it all available to them. There is nothing that escapes his attention. He knows every animal and he knows every microbe that exists. He knows why they came into being and he knows when they die. He knows absolutely everything about them and about his whole creation. He numbers the hairs on your head. He asks, do you want to question me, Job? Job had questioned God's justice in the way that he had judged him and failed to judge the wicked. And so the Lord God asked Job in chapter 4, verse 8, Would you discredit my justice, Job? And he asked him, Do you have an arm like God's? In other words, Job, do you have the strength it takes to judge and subdue sickness? If that is the case, do it. You claim that you can do a better job than I can of bringing justice to the world. Well, go ahead, Job. But think before you act. Before I turn you loose on the sinners of the world, first put on my majestic robes and practice on some of my finest creatures. And then he has him look at the behemoth, which is likely the hippopotamus. Look how strong he is, says the Lord God. And then he describes his strength. And what about the lion? And he mentions many other strong animals. In verse 10 of chapter 41, he draws the obvious conclusion and says, No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Job knew that he was beaten. He knew that there was no way that he could stand up to God. He saw himself as the powerless creature that he was. He met the great mind of God. He got a glimpse of who God is. He is an almighty God. But he is also a God who deigned to come down to earth and to speak with man. And the only reason he did so is because he cared for man. Because he cared for his creation. He cared about the fact that Satan wants to destroy the destiny of the world and the universe and man in it. And he wants to destroy it. He wants to establish that he is in control. Satan can try what he wants and bring all kinds of evil to bear, but he is not going to accomplish his goal. Satan cannot stand up to God. No one can. And Satan is not going to claim one of God's children for his own. God will protect him. He will make sure that he perseveres. Even though man may not understand what exactly is happening with this earth and the whole universe and his role within it, that does not mean that he can question the justice of the almighty creator of heaven and earth. Job had to admit that no plan of God can be thwarted and that he can do all things. There is no limit 
to his might. And Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Brothers and sisters, next Sunday, the Lord willing, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In a moment, we're going to read the first part of the form that introduces us to that celebration. It asks us to examine ourselves and to consider our sins and accursedness so that we, detesting ourselves, may humble ourselves before God. Brothers and sisters, when you meet the Almighty God, when you see his greatness as he reveals himself in his word, when you see what he has done for this creation, for you and for you and me in it, and then you cannot help but humble yourself before God and despise yourself for the wretched creature that you are. And then you cannot help but give thanks to that great mediator who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who has paid your ransom. Job cried out to him, and saw a glimpse of him. So did Elihu. But we have the Lord Jesus Christ in his fullness. He is now seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Job and his friends did not have a complete picture, but we do. That mediator and deliverer came because he loves you. He died. But he rose again and he ascended into heaven. The almighty God came down to earth for you and for me. And he has prepared a place for you. And he promises us he is going to make all things new again. He is going to renew this creation. He is going to renew you and me. Do you want to bring other people to faith? Do you want your children to learn what it is to be a believer? Do you want your wife or your husband or your fellow worker to come to faith? And then give them a picture of the awesomeness of God. Tell them about the wonderful relationship that he has with his creation and that he has with all those who believe. And show in your life that you believe in him, that you are a child of his be a servant of God. Be a servant because of the realization of what he has done for you and his whole creation. Four times in verse 7 and 8 of the last chapter, God called Job my servant. My servant. How did Job serve God? Well, Job did not curse God in the midst of his suffering. He had many questions, but he never questioned the existence of God and his truth. And in the midst of suffering, he held on to God. And in this way, he silenced the devil. Satan was defeated. Through Job, you also get a glimpse of God. The friends of Job had said some awful things to him. They had accused him and his children of many things. But in this last passage, we see that he forgave them 
as God also required of him. He forgave them as God forgave him for his lack of humility. Brothers and sisters, that is what we may celebrate today, namely the forgiveness of sins. And also next week as we experience God's blessings around the Lord's Supper table. We may celebrate the forgiveness of our sins in spite of our many sins. The Lord God blessed Job. He received twice as much as he had before. Everything was doubled. He lived still a long life after this, but none of these things mattered to Job as much as the relationship that he has with his Father in heaven. That is what mattered to him most. Before it all started, and before the Lord God took it all away, he already knew and practiced that what we have here on earth, including our children, including all our possession, they mean nothing without God. For this present earth will pass away, and everything in it. God is always going to be there, together with those who belong to him and who hang on to him. What a mighty and wonderful God we have. Amen.